Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Charles Eisenstein, author of Sacred Economics, Climate, many other works. Uh, Charles, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hey, thanks, Eric, for having me on. Charles, when when people ask you to introduce yourself and you want to give them a sense of of what you're about, what do you say? Well, it depends who's asking. If it's a close relative, I might edit it a bit. Often I'd say something like, um, I'm here to remind you that you're not crazy or I'm a servant of an emerging story, uh, a new defining story for civilization and a more beautiful world. And yeah, my work is basically describing the transition that that humanity is undergoing right now and how that shows up in our systems and our psychology and pretty much everything. And, and why don't you trace your intellectual journey a bit? You, you have a bunch of books out. What, what is sort of the thread that ties them together and what's sort of the evolution between the between the books? I could go into a little bit more of what I just said. Uh, the thread basically... The overarching meta-historical arc is that civilization is defined by a story of separation that tells us what the world is, who we are, what's important, what's real, what's possible, how things began, where they're going. And that story basically says that you are a separate individual in a world of other that does not have the qualities of a self full selfness, that's in human beings alone. And the world out there is basically a random melee of force and mass. And that human progress, therefore, comes from exerting more and more mastery over this indifferent or hostile world outside of ourselves, dominating the competing other separate selves, insulating ourselves from the forces of nature, harnessing the forces of forces of nature, exerting more and more force, more and more precisely onto the world to make it in the image of our own intelligence, to bring order to chaos, to bring civilization to the wild. That's the story that we've lived in increasingly, we meaning the dominant culture. And my thesis basically, and then I'll apply it to whatever field, you know, economics, it could be medicine, education, whatever, politics, the thesis is that this story, this mythology even, contains the seeds of its own collapse, and that we are seeing that collapse accelerating today that makes the story increasingly uninhabitable. And at the same time, we are pulled toward an intuition that a more beautiful world is possible. And we catch glimpses of it. So there's a push out of the old world, out of the old story, because it's becoming intolerable. It's not working. And there is a pull that comes in the form of these experiences and visions that we have that tell us that what we've been taking for granted as normal is just a shadow of what life in the world could be. So then in my writing, I I describe what does that look like in money systems? What does that look like in technology? What does a new story look like when it's fleshed out in materiality and relationship? We're going to spend the next couple hours going deep on on all of this stuff. But if if someone were to leave this podcast 
you know, two minutes minutes from now, they just want to do the quick summary and, and maybe, uh, and then we'll, we'll obviously go much deeper. What, what would you sort of crystallize? What are what are some of the principles or, 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 or takeaways that, hey, the world would be different in this way if everyone, you know, agreed with, with your principles? Oh boy, I, I don't even know if it's a matter of everyone agreeing with my principles, which is why I'm not actually in the persuasion business. I would say that there is an emerging consciousness or an emerging frequency that part of which is a different belief system, a different story of the world, and a different story of the self. And I'm hoping through this conversation that people can feel the presence of that emergent self slash world slash story, that I can remind people of what they already know is true and maybe give voice to uh, a secret longing and a secret rebellion and to normalize that to help this collective process of stepping out of the old normal. Cool. So I have sort of two branches of questions I want us to spend a few minutes on. One is you, you talked about the narrative, the narrative of separation. Can you give some, uh, and you do this a little bit in the books, some historical context for uh, where the narrative came from? Uh, if there was a different narrative before that, that's more you know congruent with what, what you're talking about and, and how that uh, evolved? Yeah. So the narrative isn't like just some philosophical error that all of a sudden we made and everything went wrong, nor is it a evil plan perpetrated by a clandestine elite that has got the world in its grip. It's something that co-evolved with technology, co-evolved with social systems. And that is, so it comes from those and it contributes to those. So one example would be hundreds of thousands of years ago, the development of fire as a tool that human beings use So once we began making fires, it defined a new boundary between the domestic and the wild, and it enabled humans to impose more control and more dominance over the world than any other animal can. It was a a new thing in this world. And so that caused us to look at the world and look at ourselves in a different way, setting the stage for further divisions of the world through language. Language actually is a later development than fire. So then when we begin to name things, it sets up a further distinction between self and other, between master and mastered, setting the stage for domestication, uh, where first conceptually we make things ours by naming them, and then we practice that by domesticating plants and animals. And once we've done that, then it creates a further distinction between domestic and wild. And then you have the concentrations of population that domestication allows, from which come division of labor, social classes, technology, science, writing, record keeping, writing, mathematics, calendars. I mean, the whole thing takes on a life of its own. And we migrate more and more into a human world that is distinct from the natural world. Then came the machine uh, industry, a further step of separation, where we began to live in an artificial world, separated even more from the rhythms of nature and from uh, an immediately sensible interdependency with nature. A commodity economy separates us from the sources and the consequences 
of our choices. Uh, and then the, then the latest step is the step into the digital realm, where we're living in a large part, not only in an artificial reality, but in a digital, not even material. It's not just unnatural, it's, it's also non-material. And I'm not an anti-civ philosopher, if you know that term, you know, a, a critic of civilization who says that it's all a big mistake. I think this is all part of a inconceivably vast and subtle process. When you look, look back in history, are, are there critical things that we could have done that you think would have made all the difference? Or do you think this was somewhat inevitable? I, I think it's pretty inevitable. It, the same kind of trajectory was launched independently in various places around the world. This, everywhere where people began to domesticate plants and animals and build civilizations, you had social classes, slavery, warfare, patriarchy, money, uh, the whole shebang, every single place. And, and the good things too, writing, mathematics, science, astronomy, literature. Yeah. There's this book, Non-Zero, that talks about, it, it claims that history has a, has a direction and, and the direction is sort of increasing social complexity. And we either need to, you know, have moral progress so we can rise to the occasion and, and effectively globalize coherently or, uh, or it'll be, it'll be chaos. I, I just say that as a, you know, question to segue to ask you, do you, do you think that history has a, as a direction? And if so, where, where does that direction going relative to, to your, yeah. your desired world? Uh, I, I think it does have a direction. Uh, it's the same direction that we see in, in nature and in pretty much any complex dynamic system, any nonlinear dynamic system, the tendency is toward greater and greater complexity. So we have the human brain, then collections of human brains into small societies, and now a further level of complexity, a global civilization that still is forming um, the complex uh, entity of your body a multi, or any multicellular organism. The cells operate in near perfect coordination and harmony with each other. Everyone knows exactly what to do. Everyone, I imagine each one of your cells is really joyfully uh, exercising its gifts and in complete trust that its needs will be met. And so it, it feels totally free uh, to give and give and give. And it is fully open to receiving everything it needs, all of the glucose, all of the enzymes, whatever it needs. It, it, it's in uh, perfect coordination and flow. We haven't, the meta-human organism, the collective body of humanity, obviously is not in that state right now. We have you know, one tissue fighting another tissue, one organ fighting another organ. We haven't made that phase transition into being a coherent body yet. But I think that's where what we're learning how to do. Yeah. You, you had a couple of great episodes with uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger uh, on your podcast and in his podcast. And he's, as far as I understand, part of the sort of game B school, which says, hey, right now we're living in, in game A, you know, current civilization, and there's going to be a, a phase transition because game A at some point will, will, will not be sustainable. And then that transition is either transition or collapse. And then there's this game B, new, new world possible. Do you see your work as sort of outlining what game B is? And I said to ask, how do we get from 
you know, where do you differ or overlap from him and his school? And then be, how do we get from here to there, there being the world that you, that you visualize? Yeah, I have a lot of resonance with Daniel. I think that we're describing something very similar. I don't know if it's exactly the same thing, but we're describing something similar using very different language. I'm not so much, I guess, I don't know. I was going to say I'm not so much proposing systems blueprints for here's what it could look like in a plan B, uh, although sacred economics is, is, is an exception to that. But more, I'm offering filaments of a new tapestry of ideas, of stories, of practices, of perceptions, ways of seeing ourselves, ways of seeing each other, contributing to a psychic climate in which systems of a plan B will find a home. Because like to give an example, if you're, say you're trying to run an organization according to gift principles, according to uh, cooperative principles, and it's a challenge. For one thing, everybody is still in a larger economy that encourages what Schmachtenberger would call rivalrous um, practices. And we're, we're, you know, people have to pay their bills, they're, they're in debt or whatever. So there's these external pressures. But then also, everybody coming into the organization carries what I like to call habits of separation that are necessary adaptive habits for anyone who's grown up in a money economy. The habit of always being on your guard, who's taking advantage of me, what's fair, what's the right compensation for my labor, even that concept, that way of thinking compensation assumes that labor is a sacrifice that you don't actually want to be doing. So you need to be compensated to make up for the sacrifice that you're making of your time and energy. So if we're stepping into a world where work is no longer a separate category from play or from life, where we're doing work that we love, then the whole concept of compensation and all that comes with it fairness, that becomes irrelevant, but we carry these habits with us. So a lot of my work and and some of the work that I appreciate and support in the world has more to do with undoing those habits, illuminating those habits, healing the wounds underneath those habits, so that when we step into a system or organization that's trying to enact principles of a plan B or of a new story, we're able to, to be part of that. Well, one, one thing I want to double click there is we've been talking about natural a little bit in this conversation. And I struggle a little bit to determine what, what is that? I mean, humans are a part of nature, right? So what, what is natural versus what is not natural? You know, does it mean that, uh, does it mean something like, you know, act in coordinates with what is most sustainable or is it really just a, a um, synonym for sustainable and do animals do things that are not natural too, or is it only humans or yeah, the word natural has limited utility because obviously like the whole world already encodes uh, a kind of human exceptionalism that says we're not natural or that some things aren't natural. So it's one of those words that if you really try to pin it down, it dissolves. It doesn't really mean anything yet. We kind of know what it means and it can still be a useful word. Uh, so maybe one way to rehabilitate the word would be to say that something natural is something that recognizes certain important truths 
such as the truth that uh, everything dies, uh, the truth of impermanence, uh, the truth in ecology that waste is food, uh, the truth of the impossibility of endless exponential growth. So anything that violates natural laws would not be natural. You could look at it that way. Things Then you can understand things that seem unnatural may actually be part of a natural process that's larger than we can recognize, such as exponential growth. It looks like humanity has been violating natural law by enacting or attempting infinite exponential growth. But if you look at a growth curve, exponential growth looks like part of a shape with my hand right now, uh, a curve that starts out slow, accelerates, and then flattens out and reaches a steady state. Uh, So that would be the growth of of, uh, a new organism coming into an ecosystem, proliferating for a while, and eventually reaching a steady state relationship with everything else. And I think that there are signs that human development follows exactly that curve, despite the, the fears of Malthusian thinkers like it looks like population growth is falling rapidly and that that what looked like exponential growth is what I, as I was saying part of a different kind of curve and that will probably reach peak population somewhere between 2050 and 2100 could be even sooner if certain trends play out um, you know in health I'm curious when in your intellectual evolution, did you, it maybe you always felt it, but when did some of these thoughts really crystal for you that, Hey, there's a, there's a different narrative and that narrative is better. And I, I guess I'm good. Forgive me if this is just a classic ask, but how do you know? <laughs> just cause I, I, I feel with tar, you know, um, and I, I guess I'll, I'll pause there for a second and ask another question that might not shed some more light. You know, if you listen to Peter Thiel, that, that name triggers some people, but sort of this school of thought that says, Hey, the problem is that we just don't have enough progress. We don't have enough technological innovation. And if we did, we'd be, uh, you know, working through some of these, some of these existential problems. That's what, one school. Thought. The other thought is, no, no, the way we even think about progress, technological growth is, is, is challenged and, and we need to sort of reorient everything or else it's just going towards, you know, unsustainable collapse. And then, you know, they would respond back by saying, well, we'll take a few more, thousand more years of that. You know, so, you know, what time frame? I guess, you know, how do you think about that discussion? And then how do you think about that, that, that first question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a really good question. As I've observed human nature and myself, if something's not working, my first response is to try even harder to make it work, to do more of the same. That's also an addiction response. And it's also the mentality of the technical fix or the technological fix. So you, so I think everybody knows what a technological fix is, right? You have uh, here we have in Rhode Island the triple E virus, this big scary thing, which actually has been around for decades and usually doesn't make someone very sick, but somebody died from it. So now they're spraying the whole state basically with uh, insecticides to kill the mosquitoes that carry the disease. Well, what's going to happen? probably they're going to also kill the dragonflies and the birds and everything else that keeps mosquitoes in check. So next year, there's going to be even more mosquitoes, even though temporarily, maybe there'll be less. So what are they going to do? Well, let's do what we did last time. It worked. Spray even more. 
And then when the mosquitoes develop resistance to that particular insecticide, the solution will be a more powerful insecticide. This, that's the template of trying to do more of what isn't working, which is also a good definition of insanity. So here we, we, we have lived in an ideology that actually goes back to Descartes. It's not as well known as some of his other stuff, but he basically said, it's the passage where he, he ends with, we will become the, the lords and possessors of nature. And what he says in that passage is basically technology is going to eliminate labor, eliminate toil, eliminate suffering, and we're going to end up in a perfect world. A very audacious idea at the time. And then shortly thereafter, the uh, steam engine is developed. Well, not that shortly, but, you know, because of the scientific revolution that he was part of, uh, within, you know, 100 or so, 150 years, there's the steam engine. The steam engine is developed and futurists were saying, here it comes, the age of leisure, just around the corner. A machine can do the work of a thousand men. Therefore, very soon, each man will have to work only one thousandth as hard. But what happened? People ended up even working harder than before, because instead of working a thousandth as hard, people consumed a thousand times more, metaphorically speaking. So the age of leisure didn't come. But that's because we need electricity. The, uh, the electrical revolution is going to bring us that age of that paradise, the technological utopia. And then after that, it was the miracle of chemistry. And then the computer, that'll replace mental drudgery in the same way that the machine has replaced physical drudgery. And then it's nanotechnology or genetic engineering. It's always one more thing. Um, and not to mention social engineering. That's going to bring us into utopia. We're going to apply science to society. And we're going to call it political science, the social sciences, and and attain the same triumphs in these realms. And then we'll have the perfect world. So here we are in 2019. And I think a lot of people share my perception that the future is running way behind schedule. You're probably younger than me. But when I was a kid, man, like the year 2000, that was an impossibly futuristic year. It was going to be like the Jetsons. We were going to have robot servants, space colonies, flying cars. If you got sick, any, you know, you'd take a pill that would cure any disease. It was going to be this, this paradise of miracles. And we're not seeing that. We're not seeing the 200-year lifespans that were predicted. Lifespans actually falling. We're not, and it's not because we stopped spending much money on medical, on, on healthcare, is it? Uh, we're not seeing an improvement in human happiness. Suicide rates are, are steadily rising. Depression rates. I mean, something isn't working here. Poverty. Why do we have poverty? Productivity per capita is double what it was when I was a kid. Why do we have poverty? Is it because we've technologically regressed? Is it because the machines don't work anymore? So different people come to this realization in different ways. Often it's through a health crisis or a marital crisis, something that says our story isn't working or their financial situation worse than their parents. Why? The story isn't working. So there's still the ideology that the reason that it's that we don't have paradise yet is because we still haven't fully implemented everything. We still haven't converted the whole world into one data set so that we can rationally 
disperse our resources, rationally deploy resources according to computer algorithms that'll maximize human happiness. There still is that ideology, but I think it's wearing thin. Yeah. Yeah, the, what they would say is, yeah, the, the story is working. We just haven't executed on it yet. And we're so close. Right. You know, we're just a, a few decades away. And, you know, we will have, uh, you know, automation that will bring, you know, people won't have to work anymore. We'll have a lot more leisure. We'll have basic income. And, yeah. you know, the reason why, you know, 2000, the Jetsons haven't come is because we, yeah, we're or not, not only have we not executed on it, but we're no longer ambitious as we once were, you know, in, in, you know, Richard yeah. Nixon in the sixties was saying, uh, you know, let's cure cancer or, you know, let's go to, let's go to space, uh, you know, in the sixties as well. And, uh, we're, we're, we're not as ambitious as we once were. So we need, we need to not just execute on the story. We need to double down, uh, on the right. story. Right. What's wrong it's always that? been just around the corner. You know, this is like, people were saying this in 1885. It's always just around the corner. Do you still believe them? But, but they would say, but isn't life so much better now? <laughs> or, you know, uh, uh, that's an ideology. Is life so much better now? In some ways it is. I, I won't dispute it. Um, I love that we are in a low birth rate, low death rate, low child mortality. I mean, age rather than high birth rate, high child mortality. I think that's a lot better. There's some things that I think are way better. Do I think that we are better for having air conditioning? Uh, that's one of the, the, biggest, most impactful inventions in the last half century. No, I don't actually. It's responsible for nobody sitting out on their porch anymore and you get addicted to it and people can't even go outside. People spend 95% of their time on average indoors. It destroys community. Do I think that we're better off for having double the square footage, the double the floor space per capita as in the 1960s? No, that corresponds to a shrinking of of civic engagement and, and public space and the town square and things like that. Do I think, so I, I do not, while there are some things that are definite improvements, no, I don't think that we are better off than we were 50 years ago. I don't think that we're happier. The happiest people I ever meet are people living in less developed places where the level of joy is just, you go there and it changes your life forever. Say more about that. Why, why, why are those the happy places? Well, because the, uh, I call it the ascent of humanity or the course of development, the course of economic growth has given us more and more of things that we can quantify at the expense of the qualitative, the things that we cannot or do not quantify. So intimacy, community, relationship, uh, intimacy with nature, um, the the um, familiarity with the birds and the trees and the insects around you, uh, these these deep relationships, um, to be known and to know the people around you, to know their stories, to feel at home in the world, to feel that you belong here, all of these have eroded um, a basic security, a basic feeling of being at home in the universe. The social elements of identity have been truncated. They've, they've been they've attenuated over the last few generations and replaced by various false forms of identity, such as consumer brands or political identities. And I think that 
we have to recognize that something fundamental has gone wrong here that cannot be solved by more of the same, that cannot be solved by more sophisticated ways of improving the quantitative aspects of life. More stuff, more data, more precision, more control. But that this mentality has brought us to an untenable place. Yeah, there's the, uh, and just to sort of put a um, cap on this, put a lid on it. If you were to describe sort of the crux of different philosophical assumptions that you are operating from, from the, you know, Tyler Cowen, Peter Thiel sort of progress school of thought that says, Hey, we just, we just need more. We're we're almost there. What do you think really, you know, is is it, you're both smart people. Why come to different conclusions? What what is the sort of philosophical difference? Maybe the biggest difference. Yeah, I, maybe I could name some philosophical differences, but I'm more interested in the source of those differences because I don't think I'm smarter than people who are, you know, Peter Thiel or Ray Kurzweil or, or you know, various techno evangelists. I'm probably less smart than they are, but I have a different set of experiences. For example, early exposure to the limitations of the scientific materialist worldview. Any system that carries the blind spots and limitations that I've come to recognize is going to generate a very partial result. It's going to leave things out. And the things that get left out, I mean, this is true universally. Anything that you're not seeing is going to grow and call for attention. So I guess I like like to... uh, give voice to this because a lot of people harbor these experiences, these violations of consensus reality, uh, these anomalies, these exceptions to what we've been told is the way of the world. For example, that change happens when you exert a force on a mass. That is basic Newtonian reality. But have you ever experienced a breathtaking synchronicity that you're like, There's no way that that was just coincidence. I can't believe that that happened. That's just too much. And then the mind comes in and says, well, it might seem like something meaningful, but you don't remember or report all of the times where you didn't find just the right book that answered your question that dropped off the shelf. So your selection bias is making it seem that reality is more, like you have that intellectual response that seeks to preserve the the causality, the story of causality that you grew up in. At least I have that. But there's something in you just like, no way. That can't be. Or different so different. Some people have, you know, spiritual experiences. Some people have healing experiences when the doctors with all their technology said it's impossible. There's no cure. And then they saw, you know, a hypnotist. Uh, who regressed them to a past life and they you know went through their death process and then they they healed like they have something experience like that. I have some experiences like that, not to an extraordinary degree, but I also kind of collect them and I invite them and then then there's there's I was listening to what's his face um mark gober's podcast um you know where he's collected some very compelling evidence of that he's presenting about psi phenomena, about near-death experiences, telepathy, that kind of stuff. And you can choose to just ignore that. But 
<clears throat> why are you ignoring that? That is an ideological choice. You can say, well, it couldn't be true, so it must not be true, and I'm rational. But how do you know it couldn't be true? Do you actually know that? What are you defending? A story or a mythology, I like to call it even, the mythology of science, has an immune system. It keeps out anomalous data points. It keeps out invaders, uh, the, the pathogenic bacteria that could destroy the entire edifice. But eventually, when it gets old, its immune system stops functioning very well. And all these anomalous data points can come in. I think that's happening right now. And can you uh, detail what you see as the biggest limitations of the scientific materialism worldview? Is it, is it that it seeks... Uh, is it one of one of the problems that it seeks strict causality, whereas in reality many things have sort of numinous causality? Or what are the biggest limitations? Or yeah, so I want to say that it's a very powerful story, a very powerful system of ritual and magic. That's at least one way to look at it. But it has unexamined ontological assumptions, unexamined or unquestionable or unprovable uh, metaphysical assumptions such as that the, the reality that you experiment upon is not changed by the experiment itself. Therefore, experiments are repeatable. Therefore, you can control variables. But if every, another story says everything is related to everything else, the questions that we ask change the reality of which we are asking the question because existence is relationship. If you believe that, then... You have to question um, the repeatability of experiments, and you then and it opens up new questions. Why do some experiments seem repeatable, and when are they not repeatable? And you notice things that you wouldn't notice before that you would that you would cast aside before, such as the decline effect, uh, which is a new phenomenon shows up uh, very dramatically in your research results. But then the more it's studied, the more the, the, the less the statistical significance is, and it gradually kind of fades back into the background. Or uh, the experimenter effect, that you seem to get better results when you are a believer in the thing that you're experimenting on. Uh, all kinds of stuff. And that's just one metaphysical assumption. Um, another is that, like you said, the, the, um, that causality is the result of the four recognized physical forces operating upon matter. It cannot see a causal principle like morphic resonance, which, as you know, I'm sure it says that a change that happens in any one place generates a field of change, and the same change starts happening somewhere else. That is profoundly unscientific according to what we know as science, uh, or the idea that something always happens because of a cause. Things just don't happen. Or the idea that, yeah, that the world outside of ourselves is just a bunch of stuff fully described by the mathematical laws of physics. Oh, here's the biggest one maybe, is that everything real can be quantified, yeah. can be measured. That goes back to Galileo. That's even before Newton and Descartes. If it's real, you can measure it. And therefore, scientific progress comes through bringing more and more things into the quantitative realm. If we want to make a science of consciousness, then you measure brain states. You find something to measure. And ultimately, everything can be measured. So 
what happens when we let go of these assumptions? There are other knowledge systems and other systems of ritual on this planet that do not hold those assumptions. And maybe you've experienced some of them. Uh, I was, I was going to ask if you're familiar with Forrest Landry's work. I think he's trying to sort of reconcile facts and values or science and values, or, 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 or I was going to ask you which, which sort of bodies of work are you most philosophy on, on science are you most sympathetic to? And is it something, or basically you're asking for a mix of science plus other, or no, no, no re- rethink how we think about like a science, just one tool in the toolkit or no, no, no. It's yeah. Yeah. I've read a little bit of Forrest's stuff and had a couple of uh, fun conversations with him. I don't really know his work that well. Let's propose that what's fundamental in the world, in the universe, is not facts, but stories. In that case, the story of science, the story of the world that science holds, is a useful tool that is helpful in, in, to accomplish certain things, and that corresponds to a state of being and a state of civilization. And there are other uh, operating lenses through which you could see the world that reveal things that that the lens of science cannot see, that uh, obscure things that are crystal clear through the scientific lens, that enable other kinds of accomplishments that science is incapable of, and that cannot achieve some of the things that science can achieve. We see this quite obviously in holistic health. There are conditions that are pretty much intractable through the lens of let's control something. Let's exercise surgical or pharmaceutical force to make the body be different than it is. But from a perspective of all things tend toward wholeness if they have the right resources and the right information. So let's add a little drop of information, call it homeopathic remedy. What and, and, and then if we find the right information, then the natural tendency toward wholeness will be able to operate. Like that is a completely different worldview that you're stepping into. I think ultimately reality is one. It's not unscientific. I don't think homeopathy is actually unscientific. It's not that there's the material realm and a separate spiritual realm and some things operate in the material and some operate in the spiritual. Maybe that's an answer to your question. I do not, I do not think that, that, that there are, that I'm not a dualist. Let's put it that way. And I mean, there's so much I could say about this. Uh, one is one thing is that stories themselves are living beings that go through an evolution. The story of science is evolving now. And in fact, entering a metamorphic phase uh, in which it's becoming something greater than it once was. One aspect of this is that the lens of measurement is revealing things that had been outside of scientific reality. For example, the uniqueness of water, of any two, quote, samples of water. I mean, even the, the concept of a sample says that you can isolate something from its original context and it remains the same thing. Take a sample. You take a sample of pond water and you put it in the lab. Is that now the same water as it was when it was in the pond? That is a metaphys- metaphysical claim, or a, a, it's, it's, a, it's a claim that is actually, it's an ideology. Because 
Okay, so then there's there's science around this about how water can hold structure and convey information through its its um, microstructure and nanostructure. So this is explainable in terms of electromagnetic forces, hydrogen bonds, van der Waal forces, things like that. So it's not actually unscientific, but it does represent an expansion of science because it's leading us toward a universe in which beingness is not the exclusive property of human beings or even what we call living beings, but that all things in the universe are unique and are the sum total of all of their relationships. This is even found in quantum mechanics where existence is not a unitary predicate that something exists or not in isolation from its set of relationships. Things only exist in relationship. That's what a measurement is. And if that hasn't happened, then it exists everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It doesn't, it hasn't actually fixed into uh, an instance. Anyway, like I'm chasing a lot of threads here, but so we have to summarize that science is a useful and powerful story and, and the story includes a lot more than just the story. Um, and it's also a story that is really evolving quickly today. I'm going to say a little bit more. What does it mean to say a story is a living being? So living can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. If you want to scientifically define life, what is it? It, it maintains itself homeostatically. Uh, it responds to stimuli and it reproduces. So you could actually play with that definition and apply it to stories. They um, do seem to kind of maintain themselves. You know, if there's something that isn't in the story, you can't just necessarily like willy nilly bring it in. Like it's a, it's a, it's a thing. Uh, it uh, definitely reproduces. I can tell you the story. You can tell somebody else the story. Um, it responds to stimuli. It, it comes up at a certain moment and it can change according to new information. So you could actually play with that. Uh, but I mean by that, when I say that, I mean really to say that it is a being and we can enter a story in which it is a being. So I'm not actually making, a, making like an absolute claim of, that something is or is not something in objective reality. I'm saying try on the story that says that stories are alive, that stories are beings, and see what happens. Relate to them. See what happens when you relate to stories in that way. When you try to communicate with a story, when you ask, what do you want, story? Um, how can I best serve you? When do you want to be told? Why are you here? What are you for? I find that when I enter that story and ask those questions, I become a much more effective and powerful storyteller. So that's an example. I'm not saying that it is that, but I'm saying try that story on. Try on the story of I am a separate self in a world of other. My consciousness is neurological epiphenomenon that will be snuffed out like a candle when I die. Okay. Try that story on. Who does it make you become? What do you see and what do you not see in that story? How do you feel? How do you relate to others? And then try on a story. Oh, and, and also what else do you have to believe to believe that story? 
and then try on a story of um, that you might get from listening to Mark Gober, you know, the reincarnation and near-death experiences and going through the tunnel and the beings of light and all that stuff. And you were born here for a purpose. Your soul is on a journey to grow and develop and learn things. And so you create all the experiences of your life in order to further your own development. Nothing happens by accident. Like step into that story. Who do you become? What do you see? Brett Weinstein has this concept of a metaphorical truth that, uh, and I think he often says it about religion, but maybe in other contexts too, that maybe it's not literal truth in the way that we, we see truth as literal, but if, if you act that way, brings about a different kind of truth. Than, mm-hmm. than not, you know, believing that. Yeah. So what is truth even uh, in the old story or in the story of, of separation and objectivity, you define truth in terms of correspondence to external facts. Like it's true if, and only if at time T at point X comma Y comma Z, it was there. Like that's true. You know, is it true that, uh, you know, Donald Trump colluded with the Russians to steal the election. Okay. That is something that exists outside of ourselves and we can verify the fact of the matter. That is what truth has been in the story of, that I call the story of separation. When we let go of the story of objective reality outside of ourselves and see existence as relationship, then we cannot necessarily define truth as correspondence to facts. And then the question is, well, what is truth? I'm not going to answer that right now, but, but it's a good question. Only because it's too enticing. It, we don't have to answer right now, but how do we even start to think about it or, or who's thinking about it in a really interesting way? Or how can we get at that? Yeah. For me, truth is something elemental. I don't think I can define it uh, in any simpler terms. It's something, something that I feel, something I can recognize. Is it a combination of intuitive and intellectual, or is it mostly intuitive? Or I think that, that intellectual ways of coming to truth that we are well-practiced in can bring us to the point of truth. But for me, there's always a gap. It's like an asymptotic curve. You know, You can approach the asymptote closer and closer and closer, infinitely close, but you never actually get there. What I experience is my intellectual efforts to understand something always fail. And it's the point of failure that puts me in the state to receive the thing that I was trying to understand. So the the effort to understand it is in a way a ritual that summons the thing that I was searching for that I couldn't find to then come and find me. And then It's like I think and I think and I think and I can't get it and I give up and then I go for a walk and boom, there it comes. And it's like this landscape opens up that had been obscured before. That's the feeling of truth for me. And that doesn't mean that someday I'm going to reject that. Um, You know, I'm not going to reject that and something else will become true. I think that in a certain way, it was once true that. For some people in some places, it was true that the purpose of humanity is to is to conquer the world, to conquer nature, to become the masters of nature, to domesticate the wild, uh, to transcend nature. That story had some truth in it. 
the story of America, land of the free and home of the brave, had some truth in it, even though even at the pinnacle of that story, there was, you know, there were lynchings and and forced schooling of indigenous people and all kinds of, you know, colonialism happening, like terrible things were happening, but there was still truth in that. And that story is becoming much less true now. It doesn't have the ring of truth anymore. People might cling to the memory of that truth, becoming that that the truth of that is becoming less accessible. And the same thing with the truth of technological utopia. So yeah, Ursula K. Le Guin said the truth goes in and out of stories. What was once true is true no longer because the water has risen from another spring. And it just goes lid here. We were talking about the story of separation. We mentioned Galileo. You know, I'm curious who who are the thinkers that most you know popularized that that view. I mean, David Hume with the separation of facts and values. Any others that come to mind for you? And then I'm curious who are the thinkers that most inspired you on on the other story. Obviously, obviously you know, or I guess unity or, or the opposite of self separation. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that the uh, uh, leading lights of the uh, scientific revolution that you name some of, uh, you know, Descartes, Newton, Galileo, Hume, Francis Bacon, and then their followers, you know, who, who articulated and elaborated that story. I mean, all these people also at the same time harbored mystical pursuits. Uh, they did not themselves fully believe in that story. Uh, but that, you know, that I'm not a scholar of that kind of thing. I'm just, I've read a few things about that. The story that I'm serving in my life, I I use Thich Nhat Hanh's word for it, interbeing, the story of interbeing, going beyond interdependency to say that our very existence is relational. It's an upwelling consciousness that then pulls the pieces, the intellectual pieces to it. The first pieces of it came through in my early 20s, on the one hand, coming into contact with Buddhism and Taoism and various esoteric philosophies. Uh, I was living in Taiwan then, which was a place that was not yet fully in the modern story of the world, where phenomena that would be considered delusional in my home culture were pretty normal. You know, not if you saw like a ghost and hired a Taoist priest to chase the ghost away, like you weren't like some nutcase, you know, it was considered, oh, that's kind of spooky, but it was not like, oh, you know, you've here, you're insane. Go see a psychiatrist. You know, you're seeing things. You got a problem with your brain. So I got a lot of the pieces of the story of interbeing or, or a lot of invitations into alternative stories from the one I grew up in through living there reading and absorbing firsthand that worldview. And then also reading like Fritjof Capra, Ilya, Ilya Prigogine, Prig, Prigogine uh, the Nobel chemist, who was one of the pioneers of nonlinear dynamics and far from equilibrium chemistry. Uh, Order Out of Chaos is his classic book on that. Uh, David Bohm, uh, I read... Yeah, a lot of a lot of quantum mechanics and cosmology around that time. Yeah, so I can't say that there was you know one thinker 
or philosopher who really brought me into that. But the but the the to uh, extend the metaphor, the water is rising from many springs right now. So I want to get more into the the alternative world that is possible, and and I'll start with a question. You know, there's this sort of school of thought that says, hey, you know, as we've talked about, markets and economic growth have have brought really great things. You mentioned, you know, informality, you know, uh, we're, we're living a bit longer, certainly relative to where we're used to, but also, you know, can, you know, influence or even destroy community and, and lots of things that, that we used to have. And so there's a school of thinking that um, at different scales, you need sort of different solutions. And so basically the punchline of, of the school of thought is get your tribalism out of my markets and your markets out of my tribes, your market thinking out of my tribes. So, you know, the way we treat our family is not the way we run an economy and let's, you know, you know, treat our families the way, the way we used to, or the way people do in, in less developed countries, perhaps, but let's still, can we get the best of both basically? So the problem with keeping the markets out of the tribe and the tribe out of the markets is that the way that the markets, or I would really say the money system, the economic system is constituted today compels it to grow inexorably at the expense of everything else, at the expense of tribe, at the expense of community, at the expense of ecology, at the expense of of family, at the expense of our inner ecology, even um, of our minds, of our souls. So in order for us to maintain uh, healthy boundaries between these various levels of interaction, I think that markets are useful in a certain domain. And it's kind of like the domain of scientific reasoning, the the domain really I should say of quantitative reasoning. And these are linked because markets only operate on on things that can be somehow quantified, that can be then converted to the universal measure uh, in economics, which is money. So both scientific thinking and economic logic come down to measure. Uh, If you cannot convert it into money, it is not an economic good. And what's happened is that we have a growth-dependent and growth-creating system that growth of what? That, That compels the growth of the quantitative realm, the realm of products, the realm of paid services, the realm of commodities, the realm of money. It compels it to grow at the expense of everything else. Therefore, if we're going to um, hold money and the quantitative realm in its proper domain, we have to change it. We have to change it into something that no longer demands endless growth. And to make a long story short, what really has to change is the way that money is created. As long as it's created as interest-bearing debt, then there will always be a systemic organic necessity for growth or, or, or a pressure for growth. And anything that you do in the world that is contrary to economic growth, any, for example, ecosystem that you want to preserve and protect against extraction, or any community function that you want to preserve and protect against its conversion into paid services, will be swimming against the tide. That's the centerpiece of my economic work, is basically asking what kind of markets, what kind of money system would no longer require growth and would be consistent with ecological principles. So I guess in the, in, 
in the ideal world, my sort of two biggest questions are, what is the ideal scale and scope of, of markets? And like, is there, you know, do we, do we measure GDP? Do we, you know, are we trying to grow it or are we, are we not like, how do we think about that? And then even more broadly, what is the scale and scope of, of what we measure, what we don't measure? Like in an ideal world, are there far less measures, just smarter measures? Because there's this conundrum and I, I seem to experience this a lot of, you know, especially in the startup world, they say, you know, what you care about is what you measure. If you don't measure it, you, you can't care about it. And so do you just try to get better measures or, or do you flip that system entirely that you somehow find ways to care about things that can't be measured? Yeah. If you're running a business, then what you care about is what you measure. That's that's for sure. If you can't measure it or at least measure something that comes from it, then it has no place in business. If 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 your goal is to maximize profits, um, if you're you know pursuing a number, then you have to pay attention to the numbers. But really, like, is that true in your life beyond business? That what you care about is what you measure. Like, do you measure how much your partner loves you? And are you going to find a partner by coming up with some kind of love metric and comparing different prospects and saying you? love me more than she does. So I'm going to be with you. That's a fantasy. Can you really measure your happiness? Can you measure intimacy? Can you measure joy? The ideology of measure says that someday we can. This was a, uh, an old conceit going back, I believe, at least to Jeremy Bentham, who said that, you know, in a perfect society, we will have a accurate measure of happiness, a unit called the util for utility, and governance will be a matter of maximizing the total amount of utility. And then economists took that over and said, yes, and in fact, the best measure of utility is money. Because if you pay for something, that means you really want it. You wouldn't pay for it if you didn't want it. So the progress in human happiness then is equivalent to increase in GDP, because increase in GDP means more and more things are being exchanged for money. If it's not exchanged for money, it doesn't count as part of GDP. And this is not an accident. This is not just that someone chose a bad metric that includes uh, as positive things, divorce and gun manufacturer and cancer and excludes free GPS apps and cooking for your family. It's not an accident, but it's because growth in GDP is the basis of lending and of basis of money creation. You're not going to lend money into existence if somebody doesn't have a business plan that they're going to be able to pay you back, i.e. create even more money from the money that you've lent them. So GDP is woven. It's not like just some dumb metric that we could replace with something else. It is woven into the financial system, into the economic system. Anyway, so the, so the ideology that, that we're going to become happier and happier. So, okay, how do I get to that? Because um, I'm questioning, can you actually measure what you care about? Is that actually true? Or is that only true in a certain realm? And how big do we want that realm to be? How much of life do we want to subject to measure? And how would we keep some of life outside the realm of money and outside the realm of measure? One way to do that is to have a money system that doesn't always expand and grow. Another way to do that is to decouple 
our survival from economic necessity, basically with a universal basic income, which it says basically, it says, I support you. I trust you. And I know that there's a lot in life that is important, not only for yourself, but for the world that we do not yet know how to measure or that we will never be able to measure or that is immeasurable. And I want you to do that. I want you to have the freedom to do that. So I'm going to give you enough money to survive. And I trust that freed from servitude to the realm of quantity, that you will be able to act on your instincts, to act on your love, to act on your care and your kindness and do things that, that we don't really know how to pay you to do. Maybe, you know, your grandmother needs you to be with her in her last year and hold her hand as she's on her deathbed. Are we going to somehow monetize that? And are you going to document that you did that and that she really needed it and that you were actually there and that you were present with her and not on your phone while you were doing that? No, there's, there's so much that we will never be able to quantify. So we need to support, we need to have a system that allows and supports that and keeps that realm sacred. And the, so the two things of monetary reform, I haven't gone into the details. It's based on negative interest, which I know is anathema to many of your libertarian listeners, but it is, uh, anyway, I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, And universal basic income. Uh, Those two go hand in hand in uh, preserving a sacred and qualitative realm. Yeah. We'll get to the money stuff in a bit. The, um, just, I want to pull the thread on sacredness. Like, what do you, what do we think about social networks? It, it, you know, Facebook, Twitter, you know, what they've done to, they've quantified some elements by quantifying some elements of relationships. What they've done is they've, you know, the positive side is they've helped, you know, people meet like-minded people or, you know, I guess, how, how do you think about social networks in the context of, of the sacredness of. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about them. On the one hand, they can replace um, multidimensional flesh and blood relationships with digitized, um, highly mediated relationships. I remember very early on in the social media era, I was teaching at a university and there was a student who, who was an RA, like a dorm senior comes in and they're like the enforcer in the dorm. And it was the same dorm he had been in as a freshman. And he's like, in the fresh, as when I was a freshman, everybody knew every single person on the entire floor. And now people sometimes don't even know who's in the next door room. They don't know anybody because they're always on social media. So there's that. On the other hand, social media is meeting a need that has arisen from the destruction of community. So many of our means of socialization don't exist anymore. And it's been a, a long process of the, of the degradation of community that involves things like television, air conditioning, uh, the automobile, and social attitudes. You know, when I was a kid, like the neighborhood was full of kids running around. Everybody knew each other. We could go into pretty much any house except the one mean lady. You know, like it was, it was a whole tribe. And now, um, I mean, I have friends who have gotten CPS called on them for letting their kid play outside unsupervised. Like you just don't have that anymore. There's, and not to mention the fear of the outdoors. 
you know, oh, what about the sunscreen and the bug repellent and, you know, the Zika virus or whatever you can get. What do you say to the idea that, let's say you were in, in your dorm and, and, you know, only on your dorm were, you know, I'm simplifying radically, ruthless libertarians who you might not see, you know, eye to eye with or get along right. with. But now because of social networks, you could find people who are excited about things you're excited about. And yeah, maybe right now you're not yet meeting them in person as right. much as you should, but maybe yeah. in the future easier to do yeah so. so i was getting to, I, was, I, was, I was yeah i wanted to get to that because i think besides the the precious functions that it's replaced and has contributed to the replacing of like there's also something new that is possible through social media and through electronic communication in general uh, which is a weaving of the collective tribe of all humans on earth into new structures uh, so like you can have remote tribes, like you can be in several tribes at once. One could be local and place-based and one could be distributed around the world. And, and, and other social structures that are new to us that aren't really exactly a tribe that are really a community, you know, community really means everybody knows each other and everybody is in each other's debt. So we don't maybe even have the words for some of the structures that are emerging that are made possible by technology that are key in transitioning us from uh, a bunch of tribes to a coherent metahuman organism. I, I, so basically it comes down to the same thing we're talking about with, you know, quantity and money. It comes down to what is the proper role and the proper domain of social media? How can we protect other forms of socialization from it and keep those realms safe and sacred and also develop its true purpose. And so that might be a question to ask what, similar to the question I ask of a story, social media, you are an entity. What, why are you here? What gift do you want to bring us? And what, what do we need to be careful of? This is because this is a powerful thing. It's a powerful substance. What is it for? What, what is the, it's like any, it's like any medicine even, you know, it's, it can be used well and it can be abused. And so I think this is the kind of question that we need to start asking generally with technology. Uh, what are you for and what future are you part of? And if we use you in this way, what future are we going to have? And if we use you in that way, what future are we going to have? That's the kind of question that, to ask. One more thread that I want to get back to money and some of the main points in, in sacred economics. I'm curious as to the role of sacredness as it relates to, and maybe you could, you know, first define sacred, then we could, what you mean by sacred, then we can apply it to sort of uh, reality versus virtual reality. And, um, you know, we used to see the world as flat and then we saw, you know, uh, it is is not flat. And that was sort of, you know, our reality was shifted. Things externally didn't necessarily shift, but that's somewhat different. But why, why is reality more, which we don't even know if we're experiencing it to, to what extent, is, uh, you know, we're living in a simulation, et cetera. Is, is that different or, or more sacred than virtual reality? Is it because virtual reality can never approach, is it a matter of complexity, can never approach the complexity that, that, the, that the quote unquote material world represents? Or how, how would you go at interpreting that? I mean, this guy, you know, this is a very heady topic. The idea that, I mean, I'm not sure where to start, the idea that everything is a simulation, that all of reality is a simulation, it, has a kind of contradiction built into it because if everything's a simulation, then what is a simulation? 
like we have a word simulation that means something in this reality. So basically what that inquiry is leading to is basically is to, is to say, is there a larger reality that embeds this one? And what is that larger reality? Um, is there a transcendent consciousness that can observe our own? Um, are we um, contained in something something beyond ourselves? Like, what does it actually mean to say this? You know, this world isn't real; it's just a simulation. Well, what we mean by real already references the things of this world. So it's kind of a you just get bogged down in semantics when you try to unravel that paradox. So as far as like the lim- so then the other question that you you were raising is the limitations of virtual reality or simulated reality. There's one big limitation, which is the kinetic limitation. You can, you know, put on a VR headset and it seems that you are in a different world. And that world, if you have a rich enough data set and sophisticated AI, it could be uh, endlessly variable. You might never get to the end of its variation and you might never penetrate to the edge of what it's able to represent. You, you know, may not start to pixelate through any of your, you know, it might be able to calculate uh, zoomed in reality faster than you can zoom into it. So you never get the pixelation that would betray that this is not um, an infinitely vivid simulation. Okay. Nonetheless, or the kinetic thing, right. What, what it can't trick your senses into um, is the, I think the sensation of acceleration and deceleration. That's something that cannot be simulated uh, because it is, I mean, this is Einsteinian physics, you know, it, 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 the only way to, um, unless you can increase and decrease gravity um, and manipulate gravity, uh, which is equivalent to acceleration, you know, you cannot distinguish it in your body if you are experiencing, and that's why it's called the G-force, you know, when you're accelerating. So, so I think that, that in this scene, this might seem like a, you know, a philosophical, very fine distinction, but the main way that the world hits back is through our embodied kinetic experience. So if you're playing Mario Kart and you crash, you know that it's not real because it doesn't hurt because you're not actually experiencing the rapid, almost instantaneous deceleration that you would if you crashed into a wall. You're not being jerked around like that. You could have like, you know, some big bubble where it kind of jerks you around a little bit. But by definition, if you experience the same deceleration as you did crashing into a wall, it would kill you. Like you cannot fully simulate that. So I think that because we are embodied, there will always be a limitation to virtual reality. There'll always be a feeling of unreality to it, even though it can be very immersive. And that unreality is actually a little bit dangerous because it conveys to us that our that we can act with impunity. That is a, a, a dangerous message that we get from um, digital media in general and from, from films and from video games where you get a new life if you get killed, where nothing actually matters because we can 
recreate it. We can edit it. We can manipulate the pixels and make anything we want happen. That's an echo of the masters of the universe ambition that we can trace back to Descartes, that it seems true, um, but it's not true. And the consequences of thinking that we can do anything um, are devastating the biosphere. Yeah, that, I mean, this is kind of a theoretical line, but I think that it's significant and important not to get lost in the digital world. And we have this kinetic experience of embodiment that, that tells us what is actually real. And that gets at some of an idea we were talking earlier, which basically there's a group of people that believe that the world is determinant and that we can understand it, that we can master it. And there's a group of people who believe it's indeterminate. It's too complex. And our attempts to master it are, are the source of our problems. <laughs> and so, yeah, the implications there are we haven't mastered it yet versus, you know, the whole enterprise was, you know, flawed from the beginning. And it, it seems that it's so complex that I, both sides are, are kind of just, you're just taking faith, on, you know, our, 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 um, okay. There is an important issue here though. Uh, so yeah. Um, determinism versus indeterminism, you know, free will choice, et cetera, et cetera. Like I think determinism has run into real problems, even on like the most rational scientific level, when you put quantum mechanics together with order out of chaos, with, um, chaos theory, sensitivity to initial conditions, which can magnify quantum randomness. Uh, so I think there's a real real problem in maintaining that. But from uh, a human perspective, randomness isn't that much better than determinism. What we want is some kind of exercise of choice and will. Uh, and we want to know that, like, what is there an alternative between randomness and determinism? I think yes, and it is in the nature of complex systems to become more complex, to pull on our earlier theme here, uh, for order to emerge spontaneously out of chaos if some very, very basic parameters are present, nonlinearity and a certain density of interaction, uh, for example, uh, which basically says that the universe is not our enemy, that we are not living in a reality where we have to always fight entropy in order to establish a safe realm for human habitation, but that we are living in a friendly universe, not that it's always safe, but fundamentally a universe in which order, organization, beauty, and complexity are baked into the cake. They're part of reality. They are, they emerge spontaneously without us having to impose them on the world. Therefore, our role can be, we don't have to be the, the controllers and the masters. We can instead listen for the song, the pattern, the order, what wants to be born, what wants to emerge, and participate in that and align our energies with the one thing out of the many possibilities that could emerge. Think of, yeah, align ourselves with those, um, with the one that we want and participate in the birth. It's not something that we really create. It's a possibility among many that we align with and that we choose. So it's, it's choice and not creation, although that might be an academic point. Yeah, that's, that's where I would take that. Yeah. Cool. So I, I want to get to some of the uh, practical elements from, from, from some, some of the books. 
before going deep on them first, I just want to put them on, on the table. For example, we, we've done a little bit with, we talked about basic income or, or we put basic income on the table. We put uh, negative interest rates on the table. What are some of the other sort of bullet points items you would put on the table? If, if we could wave a wand and change anything about how, how the world is, is run you know, practically uh-huh. on the ground. And then, and then we'll get into a couple of them. Well, another one is internalization of social and ecological costs. Um, another one would be, yeah, economic relocalization, um, which kind of rides on uh, some of the other ones, but that would be another one I would add in there that may or may not include local currencies. And then I guess a, a more meta issue is how these systems are governed. So it gets into the political realm too. So let's start with the internalization of uh, ecological and social costs. Yeah, the, you know the problem with market failures is, and this seems to be a, a a general fork in the road. Often is, do you do more of or something different? So people say for market failures, we just need to design better markets. You know, uh, and and the crypto community is trying to design you know better incentive systems, better markets that better you know uh, involve the commons uh, and give more upside to folks. And then other people say, hey, no, we need regulation or we need something different. Uh, how do you think about in- internalizing these costs? How can we do that? Yeah, there's a, a, a danger in internalizing the costs because they depend on quantifying something, uh, quantifying ecological damage, for example. And the danger is that the the things that we don't quantify are still external and that they are damaged even more. So to illustrate it, say that you decide a forest is providing ecosystem services worth a billion dollars. So if you're going to cut down that forest, you're going to have to pay a billion dollars to compensate society and the planet for the damage. So what you're saying then is if you could make $2 billion by cutting down that forest, that it's okay to do that because these this, these lumber products or whatever, they're worth more than, now it's certainly better for the forest to be valued at a billion dollars than it is to be valued at nothing for its ecosystem services. But, but the devil's in the details. Like who decides that this figure is a billion dollars? In our current system of power, that decision is going to be influenced by the people who are going to make two billion by cutting it down. Secondly, what services or what value does that billion dollars include and what doesn't it include? It doesn't include, okay, so maybe it includes the, um, carbon sequestration capacity of the trees. Uh, does it include the benefits to, let's just say, nesting migratory birds who uh, breed there uh, and then migrate uh, over the winter to Mexico where they contribute to the health of an ecosystem there and transport nutrients across the continent that are in abundant supply here and are needed in Mexico? Does it include the the carbon sequestration of that forest in Mexico that's made more healthy by this forest here? Like, can you measure everything? There's, and and when you can't, then what gets left out and who decides what gets left out? What are we not seeing? And I think when we're talking about ecosystems, we tend again and again to underestimate the contribution of those beings that we think are 
inconsequential. Like, you know, what, what, what about how, how much should we value whales? Like seismic surveys to find petroleum uh, on the continental shelf. They're setting off these sonic booms every, every 10 seconds, weeks at a time that deafen the whales and they have all kinds of effects. You know, the, and the whales can't sing their songs anymore. Can you quantify that? How can you quantify that? It's not that, that it has no impact on the health of the oceans or of, of the climate even. If you want to, like most of the um, monetizing ecosystem services stuff, they come down to, to putting a price on carbon, which I think is really problematic because I think that our understanding of climate change is way, way too carbon reductionistic uh, and misses the the importance of the totality of life to maintain conditions for life. But anyway, you know, so so uh, whales that have gone deaf or can't sing their songs, they can't coordinate their migration patterns and transport nutrients across the ocean to places that would otherwise be ocean dead zones where they give birth and poop, you know, and and create life there, which then allows a food chain to take hold, which ends up sequestering carbon. I mean, you can't measure that, you know? So, so I think an extension of the delusion that we can measure and control everything, it's part of the problem. We have to, it's not that we shouldn't do it ever, but we have to recognize its inherent limitations that cannot be overcome merely by improving our measurements, by coming up with more sophisticated metrics that hits a, an asymptote, it hits a glass ceiling. And therefore, <clears throat> we have to also limit economic activity through non-market mechanisms. We have to, for example, hold places sacred and say, we will not, even though we cannot measure how valuable this place is, you are not allowed to cut down the trees and strip the minerals from the Amazon because it is a living being. You know, uh, the way to solve market failures as it relates to the environment is, is not via better markets or better internalization of problems because, or of externalities because that creates new problems. And it is, but, you know, government regulation also sometimes can create new problems. Is, but is that sort of what we're advocating for? I guess some mix between market and government incentives. Yeah. To- yeah. I don't think there's a shortcut answer to this. And yeah, you know, people can uh, dodge the regulations, cheat on the regulations, violate the spirit of them and hold to the letter of them, which is a parallel problem to the quantification problem. So underneath all of these, I mean, these systems have to coincide with a shift of consciousness so that we are, so that people recognize the spirit of the the systems as well as the actual mechanisms of them. The the evolution that we're going through is, is on all levels, you know, and it's internal and systems level. So yeah, none, none of these systems by themselves are a panacea for ecocide. Is this what you mean when you talk about economic relocalization or what does that mean? It's just like a lot of, a lot of economic functions that are global should be more local. Uh, Food production should be much more local than it is today. Buildings should be more local than they are today. Entertainment should be more local. People should get together and sing more, you know, and that would meet some deep unmet needs. Are those things more bottoms up though? I wonder, like, um, you know, Adam Smith said that, uh, you know, Marcus needed sort of 
I forget the words you, but it was basically, I think like religion or like bottoms up you know, cultural movements towards these things versus, you know, how are we at it? Well, I mean, there's, there's artificial barriers right now to relocalization and perverse incentives for uh, globalization. You know, for example, subsidies of the transportation and infrastructure. So some vegetables grown in California are cheaper right now for me to buy than vegetables grown here in New England. The reason that they're cheaper, though, is that the, the, is that the transportation infrastructure and fuel is, is subsidized in various direct and indirect ways. So if we removed those subsidies, then we would have a lot of economic relocalization. Uh, that's just one example. And then the free trade agreements also that prevent local and regional and national governments from stopping uh, multinational corporations from coming in. Yeah. That, that prevent them from, you know, instituting in, like environmental regulations. Those, those also are, are something to, to change. So when, and I'm simplifying, when Robert Wright says we either need to globalize effectively and have the moral progress to be able to, to do that, or, you, uh, or there's just utter chaos. You say, no, there's, there's other options. And, and maybe the utopia looks like, you know, thousands of Singapore's or Israel's, you know, small sort of local, but tight knit groups. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we, we need globalization in the sense of global agreements to institute values that are um, more local. So like a local economy cannot thrive if it's under, if it's, you know, say being inundated by artificially cheap goods from abroad and when its government is not sovereign. Uh, So if we want to relocalize, and I'm not saying that there shouldn't be any global trade or anything like that. There are certain things that require a global division of labor to produce. But a lot of things are global that don't need to be global, that shouldn't be global. So if we want to move back toward more local economies, then it's going to require some kind of global consensus to do that. So yeah, I'm not against like, you know, global, becoming a global organism. And and some of our, you know, climate change might require global cooperation. Right. You know, if everybody is either through regulation or through market mechanisms, limiting environmental externalities, but one country isn't doing it, then there, then it's not going to work, you know, unless you can, or, or yeah, or even if, if, yeah, I mean, one country could ruin things for everybody. So yeah. Let's, let's spend a few minutes on, on money. You, you, um, you, we mentioned local currencies in, in the books. I could obviously talk a lot about peer to peer, uh, the, you know, the opportunity for that in the crypto, you know, movement has, um, you know, just, just sort of taken off in the last, last few years or so. What do you think is the, the promise or excitement uh, of that? And, and maybe that could segue to some of your thoughts on sort of, you know, the need for negative interests or, or just, yeah. I wrote the book right before I wrote the book right before crypto came on the scene. Um, I'm planning to rewrite the book uh, next year uh, to bring in some of those things. One thing that crypto has done is that it's crystallized the realization in people that money is just a story, that it's a system of agreements, an agreement about what symbols mean, 
that makes them valuable. It's not anything intrinsic to money itself. So if money is just a story, we can make new money. We can make a new story. And cryptocurrencies have really helped people to realize that, that we can, as a collective, choose how money is created and who how it circulates. And that is profoundly liberating. I don't think that the dominant cryptocurrencies today are really exactly what we need. Uh, Bitcoin in particular is modeled after gold, made artificially scarce, and requires, like gold, tremendous ecological damage to mine it and is prone to hoarding and speculation. But that's okay. Uh, It's really gotten the train moving. And I think any audacious experiment like that is important in these times to start us thinking in new ways. The biggest problem today with money, the thing that causes the endless growth machine and that generates a increasing concentration of wealth in the absence of economic growth is interest, is the fact that money is created as interest-bearing debt, created by banks through lending into the economy. Anytime they create money, an equivalent amount of debt is created. In fact, more debt than money. So at any given time, there's always more money. I mean, there's always more debt than there is money, which puts us into endless competition for never enough money. That would lead to bankruptcies, uh, defaults, and deflation, uh, depression, if it weren't for the fact that more money is continually being lent into existence so that people can pay the debts that came through the creation of the previous money, which means that there's a constant pressure for economic growth. And when economic growth slows, then money can no longer be lent into existence because you lend it if someone's going to make even more money. What in economics is called the marginal efficiency of capital falls below zero, meaning there's not a lot of good investments that are going to bring a positive return on capital. Then there's then money isn't going to be lent into the economy for people to use. People would rather hold on to their money. Institutions would rather hold on to their money, sit on it, at even zero interest, but it's more than zero interest because you can lend it risk-free in the form of bonds and other financial instruments that you know the government will bail out if they fail. So if you have enough money, you can get a positive return on financial investment. But so basically, and so that means that those who have money get more and more of it when the economy isn't growing. They get a bigger and bigger piece of a pie that isn't growing. So basically, our financial system does not work if there's not economic growth, which is why governments left, right, and center all talk about how we're going to get the economy growing again. But is that what the planet needs? And is that what we really need to have more and more things, more and more services, uh, less and less doing things for each other in a gift economy, less and less open source? I mean, this is not the direction we need to go. We, we, so what we need is a money monetary system that can accommodate the coming post-growth era where things that have entered the money realm can return to the realm of the tribe, to the community, to the family. We can demonetize and only keep in the money realm the things that should be in the money, in the money realm, 
only keep in the realm of quantity the things that should be in the realm of quantity. So we need a financial system that works in a steady state or degrowth economy. And that means money cannot be created as interest-bearing debt. One way to do that is to drop the interest rate floor on money by having a liquidity fee on bank reserves. And by having, now I'm not, the easiest thing would be just to abolish cash, but I am uh, very wary of the totalitarian implications of that. So let's keep cash, but it has a, it, it has a date on it, an, an expiration date that there's, there's technical ways to, to make money expire gradually over time so that money is no longer an exception to everything else in the world, which decays. There's a problem if money grows and, every, and the rest of the world doesn't. More and more of the world then has to get attached to money. Yeah, so basically um, by lowering the f- interest rate floored into negative territory, you enable investment to happen at zero interest. Because you know, if I hold on to my money, I'm going to get negative 5% interest. So you have a business plan that is just break even. Okay. All I want is that you'll pay me back the million dollars I lend you. You don't have to pay me back 2 million in 10 years, say if it were at 7% interest. Just pay me back my million because I'll be better off that way than I will if I keep the money. So you have then a system that goes the opposite direction of the concentration of wealth. It has a gradual redistributive effect. And the only way you can get rich is by being a brilliant entrepreneur and continuing to make money. In fact, you could possibly even eliminate income taxes if you had what is really a wealth tax. So you can get rich by meeting people's needs, by coming up with brilliant inventions, by being a great entrepreneur, but you can't get richer by just having money like you can today. That's another part of the rationale for it. Is there any big differences from, or what are the big differences from like how Elizabeth Warren views sort of a wealth tax? So the kind of wealth taxes that are are currently circulating politically require even more government oversight over your assets, more record keeping, more control, less transparent, less transparency, well, more transparency to the government. And they allow you to um, hide, uh, if you, like, it's possible to hide your assets in some form, but a negative interest rate on money, a fee on money itself makes you, you cannot hide it because bank reserves would be subject to a negative interest rate. So, so if you deposit money so, somewhere, ultimately the money is sitting somewhere. It's in a it's in a bank somewhere, and the bank has an account at the Federal Reserve or at the ECB or something like that, uh, and that money is shrinking. So, it it basically emanates through the entire financial system. It's very very simple. It's a tax on money itself. So you, then you don't have to tax other forms of wealth. You know, then there's questions that come up. What about other stores of value that you can hoard? What about speculation and so forth? And I'm not going to get into the to the technical details of that. Just to say that people are thinking those things through. Those are valid questions, and there are um, responses to them. One thing that is probably necessary is a land tax to go along with a money tax, 
are, are there any frameworks for determining what is left in the money realm versus what is outside of the money realm? I think that will evolve over time and that more and more things will, will migrate out of the money realm. There's a lot of, this is related a bit to the DIY movement, you know, the, the 3D printing and, and all that kind of stuff, uh, where things that were dependent on a global supply chain are becoming less dependent on it and more able to be done locally. The more local things are, the easier it is to incorporate them into local economies and gift economies where ultimately you're not even keeping track where, you know, the people close to you, you don't want to sell them stuff because they've been giving you stuff too. They took care of your kids. They helped you fix your roof. You know, they're, they're in your community. And so you're not as motivated to treat them as a uh, consumer, as a economic entity from whom you seek to maximize your self-interest. You seek to maximize your profit. You don't treat people that way if you know them really well. So I think that technology may eventually migrate more and more things out of the money realm, or at least out of the realm of a global currency. Uh, but that could be a matter of hundreds and hundreds of years. The I, two threads I want to get in the last, last 10 minutes, obviously big, big topics. One is, are there any sort of, what's the biggest sort of governance change or, or, or new way of thinking we should be thinking about? I, I, I would just in it, to name it, I would say direct participatory democracy. I can't map out a path from here to there. And there are, right now there is a terrible illness in our society that needs to be healed before we can really make any progress toward a better governance system. And it's the illness of polarization, uh, the dehumanization of the other side, the descent into separate reality bubbles maintained by um, the judging and dismissing of people that we disagree with. This is a recipe for civil war, basically. And one of my main areas of interest is to address this phenomenon and to bring peace thinking into um, the political culture. Very much right now, it's war thinking. The problem is these horrible people on the other side who are ignorant and evil and stupid. And if we can win the fight against them by arousing our side to a high fever pitch of indignation and rage and tear those fuckers down, then the world will be a better place. So even our narratives become weapons to make the other side look bad. Therefore, they depart from the truth because they're not serving the truth. They're serving victory. And why do we serve victory? Because we know we're right and we know we're good. And why are we so attached to being right and good? And when we're attached to that, will we even acknowledge something that violates that image? If not, we are impervious to the truth and therefore locked into war. This needs to be addressed. So the question of what system would work is irrelevant right now because the foundation of a new system is not in place. Right. It really goes back to what you were talking about earlier about truth. Yeah. And perhaps us seeing the truth is more expansive as to take in you know, people with different conceptions of it, but there's enough that we align on to heal. The, um, so perhaps the, the last thread um, in the last you know, few minutes we have, 
what do you think is the biggest, and obviously, you know, your last book climate was, was, it was all about this, but what do you think are the biggest misunderstandings that, that people, you mentioned carbon is, is one, uh, the direction of carbon, because misunderstandings people have about how we can solve climate change or, or what needs to be done. Yeah. Or what's Most climate change activism right now is uh, an enactment of a basic solution template of our civilization, which is find the bad thing, the cause and attack that bad thing. Find an enemy and defeat the enemy. Find the reason, the pathogen, and eliminate that thing, control that thing. That sometimes works. But we're in a situation where the cause of climate change is, even if you just are looking at carbon, like what's the cause of carbon? It's our entire way of life, the cause of carbon dioxide emissions. But I think that that is also way too narrow, uh, that a lot of things that are blamed on, quote, climate change or global warming or greenhouse gases are actually caused uh, by the destruction of ecosystems and the damage to the water cycle, the, um, the damage that comes from soil destruction, forest destruction, wetlands draining, suburban development, uh, the, the poisoning of land and sea with herbicides, insecticides, pesticides, fungicides, uh, toxic waste, pharmaceutical residues, et cetera, et cetera. These are, are harming the living being that maintains its stability, its dynamic homeostasis. And if we continue to destroy the organs of Gaia, it won't matter if we cut emissions to zero. The planet will still die a death of a million cuts. My work is in this realm is to propagate the living earth paradigm, which is actually not contradictory to a lot of the goals of the um, conventional climate movement, because to heal, protect and heal ecosystems and soil would also draw down carbon way faster than we could possibly cut fossil fuel emissions. Cutting fossil fuel emissions is nearly impossible. The alternatives are just not there yet in terms of energy, energy density and energy return on energy invested and not to mention the ecological concerns around solar and wind. They're not as clean as we would like to think. The, the easy, the low-hanging fruit is in the soil. It's to restore soil. And because what restores soil is bringing carbon into the soil. That's what organic molecules are made out of. And that can be done uh, very quickly with regenerative agriculture and reforestation. And that also mitigates a lot of the problems that are getting blamed on climate change, such as the flood drought cycle. Healthy soil absorbs more water and then recirculates it back, prolonging the rainy season. So it mitigates the floods and the droughts and stabilizes global weather patterns as well, especially the big forests, the Amazon, the Congo. So that, yeah, in a nutshell, that's I think that the mania on cutting carbon emissions is distracting attention from what's actually more important for the maintenance of a healthy living system. And so uh, for people who are listening, who want to you know, read the book, obviously, but who want to go deeper into, into, uh, into, Hey, how do we solve our problems? And, you know, we're recording on the week where what's her name? Greta Thunberg. Uh, yeah. I can't remember is a controversy or, you know, she spoke and, and people were excited about it. And it seems that we're heading towards sort of a new culture war around, around climate change and that we more intense than we had before. W what is your wish for that, 
for that that conversation or or for people who want to go deeper and think about it in this new way what what else do you want to leave? Uh, I mean I would love it if more people read my book yeah. uh, I don't think that the culture war is necessary because a lot of the the from from the paradigm I'm working with a lot of the solutions don't even depend on whether you even believe in climate change it's still a worthy goal to have healthy water healthy soil healthy forests that can even outproduce conventional agriculture where the springs are flowing again and and the songbirds are coming back there's been a 30% decline in in birds in north america over my lifetime and it's because mostly of habitat destruction pesticides the insect decline uh change in farming practices where there's no borders and and you know it's just monocrops i mean Anyway, I'm just just you don't have to subscribe to this politically polarized global warming narrative to actually support the things that, in my view, are the most important things to do, even from within the global warming narrative. Like it is a totally unnecessary polarized debate. And from diving deeply into the views of both sides, I don't see any progress in either side convincing the other. In fact, they're resolving more and more completely into two separate realities. Can we just bypass all that? I think we can. On that note, my guest today has been uh, Charles Eisenstein. This has been a fantastic, wide-ranging episode. Charles, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. For listeners who want to go deeper, uh, please do read uh, Charles' books. Uh, we talked about climate. We talked about the sacred economics. Uh, but, but he has others, the scent of humanity, uh, others. And, and anything else, uh, uh, any other places you want to point people to who want to go deeper into uh, into your work uh, online or elsewhere? Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, people can easily find me on their favorite internet search engine. You know, there's my website and stuff, but there's nothing I really want to plug right now. Charles, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a great episode. Yeah, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 